you would take your Bibles, open them along with me to the book of Hebrews, the sixth chapter. Hebrews chapter six. Let me begin reading this morning in our ongoing study of this entire book, beginning in chapter six, verse nine. Chapter six, verse nine. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, we bow in prayer before you. We pray for the ability to bow, not just physically before you, but spiritually and mentally, Lord. That our spirit in humble submission to your word would bow. That our minds in preparation to conform to your word and its truth would bow. And that we in the flesh would bow and live by the spirit and the word of God from what we hear today. Without your help, Lord, we may not bow, for our pride is too great. But with your help, Lord, humility can reign in your strength, for your glory, and for our blessing. So bless us, Lord God, with this word, instill confidence where it's needed, Repair the pathways where it's needed and help for the long run, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. People, oftentimes when they are asked this question, answer in a interesting way interesting bad not so good are you saved is the question are you saved there seems to be many who answer that question this way I hope so I hope so There's theology in an answer like that. There is theology that is perhaps errant. For it is easy for us to measure, humanly speaking, our salvation. It is easy for us to doubt, having been people who have, at times, strayed from the path. This morning, we're going to take an accounting. You know, let me just confess, there, there, there are people in my life that I love, and not always because they're dynamic and flamboyant, but rather because they're the opposite. I love my accountant, and I'm not afraid to say it. Around tax time, I love him even more because of the way God has made him. He likes to count things, to keep an account of things orderly so that I don't have to count things. He counts them. He counts actual income, 
and actual expenses. And he can think in the parameters of that world so that when I give my account to the government, it's accurate. An accurate accounting from someone who knows how to count. Second, I really enjoy historians. Regrettably, most historians can't tell a story. They're not good at the color side of adding to the facts of history the life of the human. But they give historical chronicles of the actual events, of the dates and times, and the real actions of real people. Sometimes dry on both sides of the accountant and of the historian, yet without such accuracy, we miss the bedrock details of a proper accounting and accurate history. And in so, when we relate this to salvation, it often happens that Christians are not the best accountants. And sometimes Christians are not the best historical chroniclers of their Christianity. And it certainly becomes more difficult after having taught the passage that we have been in about those who fall away here in Hebrews 6. We learned last week of these who fall into the category of the apostate or those who have walked with the church, been close to the church, know the truth of the church, and yet we find an impossible repentance for them as we studied last week in verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. And we noticed four Features of the face of these apostates, of these who have once walked for the church and now walk away from Christ in the church. And we looked at those last week, a pridefulness, a pridefulness. For they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. And in their pride, they become crucifiers of Christ by their own hands. And then even boastfulness boastfulness since they crucify again for themselves the son of God and the boastfulness is here and put him to open shame those who once walked close with Christ and with the church now become an antagonist of Christ and put him to shame who try to undermine the truth they once walked so close with and because of their close association with the truth never having been saved they now act like the unsaved, but even worse, with their vehemence and their vitriol that is directed against Christ and his church. But I left a couple of points on the table last week, and I think that was with God's goodwill. For it leads us appropriately as an introduction into our study today to answer the question, over the next number of weeks, are you saved? So that you won't have to use the answer, I hope so, which points to a lack of confidence and a picture upon yourself more than on God. I hope to do away with that by pointing to this group as the writer of Hebrews did of those who fall away from the church, of those who fall away from the Son of God. For they are prideful, and they are boastful, and they become antagonists of Christ, but they are also graceless. There is a gracelessness to this group of people. An example is given of these who cannot be restored to repentance 
In verse 7, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed. The idea here is useful versus useless. God, in his general grace, we know, reigns upon the just and the unjust alike. If you're a farmer in the United States of America, here in Montana, or a rancher, your pasture gets rain, whether you're a believer or not. Your crops get God's rain, whether you're a believer or not. God generally gives to all men grace. And the produce of the ground is expected to be useful. And it is the worst sort of thing for one when he plants a field and finds out that the seed that he has planted that was sold to him is not producing a crop of, shall we say, oats, but rather weeds, thorns, thistles. It receives the rain, but it produces after its kind. What you sow, you shall reap. If you, re if you sow good seed, from good seed you get good crop. But according to its kind, and these show us what kind of seed they are from, for they produce not something useful, but something useless. They become graceless. The grace of God that had been so showered upon them in their close association with the church has now put a net return of weeds, of thorns and thistles. And you know those weeds, there's a thing about them. You know, it would be nice if most of them, when you pull them up, it was easy. You know, you can pull good crops up really easily. What is it about weeds? You lay a hold of those things and they won't move. And then to, to add it to that, most of them have things on them that if you're barehanded, you're going to come away with a reminder that that's a weed. As those thorns and thistles and those stingers get into your hands and you're reminded of the curse, then you're reminded of the fall of man. And what was once so full of grace and useful is now useless. They have squandered the sunlight of God and the rain which he showered down upon them and they have produced not for the Lord, not for others, but they produce a selfish crop. You know, weeds are selfish. They're all about their own survival. That's a difference between Christians and non-Christians as well. Weeds produce for themselves so they can keep producing more weeds. And Christians produce for others so that others can be fed. And these are useless. It reminds us of that thing which has to be repented from in the basic doctrines that the writer of Hebrews stated to us at the beginning of chapter 6. First he spoke to this group of people as not being mature enough and needed to go back to the elementary principles, the first things of Christ. Though they should be teachers by now, chapter 5, and he leaves those discussions, he says in verse 1, chapter 6 of the elementary principles of Christ, and he says, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of the very first thing of repentance from dead works. See, weeds produce dead fruit. Useless. I mean, I suppose you can eat some weeds, and I've been told some people do. But as for me, I'll make my bread from wheat and not Canada thistle. I'm just saying. So there's a pridefulness, a boastfulness, a gracelessness, and now a uselessness, which we find in the very last phrase of verse 8, chapter 6, whose end is to be 
burned. Whose end is to be burned. Jude speaks of these who walk close with the church and have become apostates in this way. Jude says in verse 12, These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. See, they only are about producing for themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the wind. Listen, late autumn trees without fruit. I have apple trees. I have a couple of pear trees. A couple of plum trees. I'm now down to one cherry tree because this is Montana and I live in Moore, south of Garneal, and the wind blows all winter long. And just about the time, I think, I'm going to have a super bumper crop. All of those trees are blooming. The bees are buzzing around and pollinating. And then I'm reminded I live in Montana. And a frost comes. Or this year, grasshoppers. Grasshoppers. They've eaten the trees from the bottom to the top. I had one pear hanging at the top. I looked yesterday. It's gone. It's the time of pears. Rocky got pears. How come I don't get pears? I get them from Rocky. Which is a good illustration of a Christian giving to others. In autumn, we look for fruit. In its season, Christians produce fruit. In season, you can see it. Jude says these are like late trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Well, there's a description. Aren't we glad we read our Bibles? Because in the Bible we have the bad news, and then we have the good news. Many Christians read these verses and wonder, am I saved? Let me help you, Christian, to evaluate yourself starting this week. Verse 9. Verse 9. We're going to make an accurate accounting. We're going to keep an historical chronicle. Verse 9. But, by the way, this is a strongest adversative. This small word, but. It's a glorious word of transition. Though these who fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance because of their condition, because of who and what they are and what they produce and what they say about Jesus. But, Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Are you saved? I hope so. Are you saved? I will ask you again and again. And you must now start to answer on the basis of an accurate accounting and a good historical chronicle of your life. The first, is even before I get to these points, is this title that has now been given to this group that was not given to the first group we just studied, the falling away ones. And that title is this. Beloved. This isn't from the Christian toward others or even God. This is a state of being for a Christian that comes from God 
to the Christian. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Not that we first loved him, but that he first, what? Loved us. And in his first place loving of us, we become part of the beloved. Not the beloved of the writer of Hebrews, certainly that would be so, but be part of the beloved because of the love of God given to, shed upon in a special way, not in the general way of God putting rain on all the crops, on all the fields. No, on a specific purposeful way. There's a disciple who wrote a book. And in the book that he wrote, he refers to himself by this title. The disciple whom Jesus loved. So significant was this to him that his name need not be placed in the text that he was writing. So secondary to it was his name, beloved of Christ. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that for us is above the surname that we might carry and trace its history back through time and generations. Those lead again and again and again to the same recollection. The same high features. All of your families have them. They travel back in time. And they travel back in time. And when we look through them, we're looking for the bright stars. For the glory. For the honor. And what do we find? We open the closet and skeletons fall out. And we see the dastardly deeds and the ill-fated men and women. We see paganism in its rampant form. But in the new life, in the new family, for John it fell away to simply being the disciple whom Jesus loved, but beloved. Are you saved? Can you say, I am of the beloved? I am loved by God. When you are measuring from the reverse, you are asking, do I love God enough? The answer is, no. You never have. And you won't until you're glorified. You will struggle there all your physical life until you die or you are raptured up, which is my favorite choice. But until that time, that is a field upon which you will do battle with the flesh and the spirit. Does God love you is the question. His love is directed usward. The people whom he chose from before the foundation of the world to be the bride that would be forever married to him for all eternity. He is the bridegroom and the church is his beloved bride. And the things that accompany salvation come from being loved of God. The gracelessness and the uselessness and the pridefulness and the boastfulness are now contrasted with these things. And unlike the hopeless who have fallen away from Christ, of whom it was said it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, there is great hope. There is great hope for those persevering in the faith. Great hope in and directed toward Christ Jesus, our great high priest. The writer of Hebrews gives us a mature accounting. A mature accounting. Not the accounting of babes who need to be taught again the first things. But a mature accounting of true Christianity. Not just how you feel. But what you are. 
a mature accounting of Christian insurance, so that each believer might measure himself against these and so find hope as an anchor for your soul. Let's start. How far I will get, I have no idea. But this will take a couple weeks. A mature accounting of Christian assurance of salvation. We can't have a baby accounting. We can't live in the immaturity that so much of the church today walks in. They look to emotion to bolster up their feelings of being saved. Sometimes they look to overaction and busyness to prove that they are of the saints. They create great events, great things to participate in that they can mark in their histories and their accountings. But I say to you, I don't find them here. They're immature and need maturing. So this morning, I'll begin with the first of three accountings that produce a mature hope. Three proper ways of counting true Christianity, taking proper evaluation. And this accounting then becomes a historical chronicle, a chronicle of your life from your new birth in Jesus Christ to where you are right now and where you hope to be in the future but we have a history that will give you confidence that you are among the saved and not hopeless unbelievers. But let me also say if they are not present, then it's to Christ you must come in repentance. So today we will look at the first of these three, an unflagging diligence. An unflagging diligence in the work of salvation, and over the next few days, Sundays I should say, we'll look into the unchangeable confidence and an unmovable reliance. But today, an unflagging diligence in the works of salvation. I will give you five unflagging works of salvation. Unflagging, old word, I like it. I tend to like old words. They're more pregnant with meaning. They're more full. Simplistically defined, unflagging means tireless. Christians keep on Christianing. I just made that up. They keep on doing what Christians do. They keep on being what they are. Christian. An unflagging diligence in the works of salvation. Let's look at our text again. Verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work. Your work, which you have shown toward his name. Notice I missed love. That's the next point. We're just going to leave that there now. Here we are. The work offered toward his name. A direct contrast from the dead works that must be repented of. These are works of a different kind. A production of works. There's a similarity here in these that we will look at. These unflagging works of salvation. These five things that remind me of the Decalogue. They remind me of the Ten Commandments. And some of you who are familiar with the Ten Commandments realize that there are different focuses within this writing of God. And the first is focused on God himself. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Exodus 20 and verse 1, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods, what? Before me. The person of God is a first entrance, interest to the people of God. So work done must be work done 
in his name or toward his name. Any work done in any other name is not toward his name, is to your name. That's usually it, isn't it? Work that's offered toward his name. You shall have no other gods before me, including you. For whom and toward whom you work. Even retirement cannot be your God that you serve. Nor can your time off. You live and work toward his name. The progression in Exodus is moving from relationship with God to relationship of man. Honor your father and mother. If God is first... Then you honor whom God says to honor your father and mother. And then you honor the life that God has made. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. There's an attitude now toward your neighbors and how you then treat them and how you act in and toward them. Even long term, you shall not bear false witness nor covet what your neighbor has to be content because you have God. You don't need to covet as a Christian because you've got God. And when you have God, what do you have? Everything until I want something, which is the fight. God is not a forgetter of the works you have done toward his name. People forget, don't they? And that's where your struggle is going to be, Christian, if it's your month to clean the church. How many of you been where some people, not to be named, have been? Including yours truly. Have you ever been cleaning the church and start wondering why everyone's not cleaning the church? That only some people sign up to clean the church? Have you ever struggled with the flesh there? Don't raise your hands. I know what you all do. It's so easy to turn something that can be offered to God in his name up to something that is offered up to our own. And now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we're prideful. You see, here I am, cleaning the church, an offering to God. Maybe I should call someone, let them know I'm cleaning the church. I think we would stumble over the Sermon on the Mount where he said, let your charitable deeds be done Privately, so no one can see, is a work offered to God. And God does not forget. We always want an accounting, and a mature Christian understands that what he does in the name of God need no one else see it but whom? But God himself. See, God doesn't forget his own work toward you. Therefore, he will not work Forget your work toward him. Jeremiah 31 says this in verse 34. This is also where we find the new covenant. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Listen, why? For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. See, there's one thing God forgets. God forgets the sin of the believers. He remembers it no more, but the works of the believers, he remembers, you can mark it. Commentator Simon Kistemacher says, quote, sin God forgets, but deeds of kindness done in the interest of his people, he remembers. The way in which God thinks toward his people is the way we must think toward him. In Jeremiah 29, verse 11, we hear, For I know the thoughts I think toward you, God says, directing it toward Israel, with application, of course, further to us. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future, listen, and a hope. We are to be the most hopeful people because God remembers even our work and he forgets only our sin. John MacArthur has said our salvation will not be lost 
but our rewards will not be forgotten. So there is work offered toward his name. And secondly, we see, as we read again, verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and love, which you have shown toward his name. The love offered toward his name, again, John MacArthur says this, and I think it's poignant, the measure of a Christian's life is how preoccupied, is how preoccupied we are with his name. How much do we think about the name of God and the honoring of it is part and parcel of being a Christian. It is certain that we are born in our sin caring about our old name. How we look. Oftentimes fear is associated with that. Well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to look bad. When rather it should be, I don't want to tarnish the name of God. Then there's a whole difference about what you do and why you do it. See, God knows our hearts, whether our service is directed for his name or if it's toward our own. He tolerates no duplicity in our work and he sees right through it when it's fake. When we serve, we serve God. Even Jesus said, you cannot be divided in the way you serve. You serve God or serve mammon, serve money. But if you try and serve both, you will love one master and hate the other. But a Christian serves God from a full heart. And we mark those things of love that we give. In Romans 1, we see the love of the Apostle Paul toward the work that he is doing as an apostle toward these Romans. He says in verse 8 of chapter 1, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Who does he thank? Not himself. He thanks God. I thank God that your faith is shining and people know of it. He could say, well, I'm so glad I came to you and wasn't that the best sermon I taught and you're still repeating it to this day. Bully for you. I mean bully for me. No. I'm thankful to God that what is happening in you is to him and for him, even though I was the bringer of the word to you. He goes on in verse 9, For God is my witness whom I serve. Who does he serve? God whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Why does he want to come? Listen, to work a work of love. For I long to see you that I may impart, may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. When you have an us-together attitude toward each other, the beloved condition that you've been given by God now sheds its way out in love for the brethren. Jesus gave the most pointed and beautifully drawn parable of real love. Of love, a love that is real and a real offering to Christ. It speaks of the judgment, of the final accounting, and how the judge, God, Jesus Christ himself, will judge. And in Matthew 25, verse 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And some might say, well, what is this about? And he will tell them. He tells them this, for I was hungry. Notice the personal pronoun I. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Notice how the righteous, notice how the saved will answer. They will answer thus. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in and naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it, listen, to one of the least of these, who? My brethren. You did it for me. All those who are considered brothers of the king, brothers of Christ Jesus. First place, Israel. Second place, the church. How do I know this? Oh, let me take you back just a couple pages. Just a couple pages, chapter 2 of Hebrews. Chapter 2 of Hebrews. And then we look at verse 10. I'll give you some context here. We find these words. For it is fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. Of course, this is Jesus the Christ. Listen to this. And bringing many sons to glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now let's zero in here on verse 11. For both he who sanctified, sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, pay attention here, are all of one. For which reason he, Jesus, is not afraid to call them what? Brethren. For in when you did this to the least of these, the lowest the most downcast, them without the status, and you took from yours and gave to them, and you nursed them, and you fed them, and you provided for them. That is Christianity. That is a chronicle. That is an accounting of your new life. Done because they're brethren. It is the greatest tragedy in the world today that the evangelical church has so many divides, has so many infights, has so much sin between the love of God and the love of God's people for one another that they can overcome nothing. But those who stay and work it out Take us back to our old oldies radio stations. We can work it out. We can work it out. Because we're of the brethren. And we can give. An old commentator, Gerard Manley Hopkins said, and I quote, To lift up the hands in prayer gives God glory. To lift up the hands in prayer gives God glory, he says. But he goes on to say, But a man with a dung fork in his hand and a woman with a slop pail give him glory too. From the highest to the lowest, those things offered to God in works and in love give God glory. Hopkins goes on to say, He is so great that all things give him glory. If you mean they should. If you direct yourself, they should. So then, he says, and he charges, So then, my brethren, live. That is a huge statement. Live, but as you live, do what you do for the Lord. It echoes what Paul said in Colossians 3 and verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in what? The name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you, Jesus. I can mop the floor. Thank you, Jesus. 
I don't need anyone to see me as I mop myself out the door. And that's the way you mop. I know this. I had a good teacher. No one who mops the floor walks on their own floor. Amen? The third unflagging work. The third unflagging act of diligence. Ministry to the saints that is ongoing. A ministry to the saints that is ongoing. We look again to our text and we read the love that you have shown toward his name and that you minister and have ministered. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. Ministry to the saints that is ongoing. James says it this way, if a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Galatians, Paul, speaking against the works of the law to earn salvation, but also emphasizing that real, real Christians produce a fruit. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap. He will reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And then he says these profound words, and let us not grow weary while doing good. Brothers and sisters, that's perseverance of the saints. There will be times in your working of love, your working of labors, your exercise of ministry, to the very saints of God. But those who you're ministering to will not look upon it favorably. Sometimes even bite the hand that feeds them. Will you say to that, no, I am done, I've done my bit. That's enough for me. I've been hurt too many times. Let me tell you what real love is. Real love sets itself up to be hurt as many times as possible. Real ministry ministers, no matter what the result, for we know that we're not working for those we minister to. We're not ministering to get a reaction that is appropriate that we desire. Well, I minister to you. You should love me. Well, welcome to life. It doesn't work that way. Have you ever been tired? So tired that when someone does something nice for you, you've snapped at them in return? Oh, say it's not true, Pastor. It never happens. Yeah. Not among this group. But the fact is, it's true. Calving season on the ranch used to be a test of sanctification for Vicky and myself. As the night checks proceeded on and we would take turns in checking them, I would take the first few checks and then Vicky would do the checks from two in the morning and four in the morning and then I would get up and do them again. And as that time wore on and the winter gets long and cold and you start feeling the effects of lost sleep and extra work and the stresses that are there and the calves that you've had in the house to keep them alive, warming them by the fireplace, carrying them back out to mama again, I must say that there was at least one occasion when my temper grew short unreasonably even when good came to me. Thank God Vicky didn't quit doing good to me.
I think it's because she wasn't working for me alone, though she was. She's working for God. Are you saved? Is your answer, I hope so? Is your answer, I'm beloved of the Lord? I'm working for his name. I am loving for his name. I am ministering to the saints. Yes. I've been born again. And I can't believe I do this. But I do. Let's pray. Lord God, as we open this study up, I pray that those, and I know there are many in the sound of my voice who have struggled with determining whether or not they were yours, whether or not Jesus had died for them and that they were saved, whether or not they were still of the body of believers, still of the family of God. Lord, I pray that this and these studies would give them assurance, give them hope, and drive them on to more evidence so that their accounts that you will reward for you forget not their work will be counted full of reward because they filled up your glory by what they have done here. And for those who right now say, I have none of these yet. I have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I have not joined that family. I pray now, right now, you would confess yourself a sinner. Confess that everything you've done to please God so far is worthless. And you ask God to save you by his work, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross who died in your place. Believe that he died in your place and your sins will be forgiven for you are a new creation, born again to follow Jesus and do good works for his name. Lord, we turn these over to your hands. We pray you increase confidence where it's needed. We pray that you would admonish where that is needed. But we pray you would unify in your love. For we here are your beloved. And this we thank you for. In Jesus' name. Amen.